Hello, my name is Samantha Chrysanthus, and today I'll be interviewing Dan Tsang, a data librarian and Asian American studies, political science, and economics bibliographer, who's the host of Subversity, a progressive public affairs program broadcast on KUCI, UC Irvine's public affairs radio station. Subversity with Dan Tsang has been on the air for a total of 15 years, and it is very important because it broadcasts, quite simply, what mainstream media won't. I want to say thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today. I'm really excited about the work you do both to demand our attention and not let your listeners forget so much the important figures and media texts that have emerged since Subversity began. So why radio broadcasting? Why Subversity? How did this all begin? Well, actually, I... I had a student who was working for me at the, in 1993 who uh, was already uh, a talk show host on uh, KUCI. And he had actually a three-hour program called Freedom of Voice where he would tackle contemporary issues. He was an undergrad. And uh, he, had a good, he probably had a better memory than I do. And he could remember facts and just really talk really well and discuss political issues on the air. And for three hours, actually. And uh, mm-hmm. so what happened was there was some big case going on at the time in 93, and I ended up getting involved in... There was a protest in, the, in a city in Orange County here. Orange County is... Um, is uh, you may have heard of it. It's yes. actually where Disneyland is. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so it's actually at that time, it was quite a conservative town. Yeah. And uh, it, be, it was embroiled in some police harassment uh, issue and some of the students had been protesting at a city council uh, locally and I heard about it and I went to the city council meeting and gave a talk uh, they're protesting they're taking pictures of young uh, high school students actually secondary school students and the local paper covered it and at about the same time a different set of student, uh, high school students uh, had been stopped by the police, and they, their parents um, get the local paper, so they read it and read about this protest, and then they ended up calling me at work at the library about this protest because they had also been stopped in a different city. And um, so when I told my student about it, he said, oh, let's have them on his show. So I had two of the girls on the show. Uh, he interviewed them, and then... He, my student said, oh, you could have your own show. So that's what I did. I <laughs> applied for a show and got it. Okay. Um, so I'm going to continue actually by probing you a bit on the racial profiling you'll see in Southern California. Could you maybe expand on the cases you were talking about just now? Oh, at the time, they were um, picking out and harassing uh, kids who were wearing baggy pants. And they... The police thought that these were uh, signs of gang culture, and um, they happened to pick on these uh, Southeast Asian kids. Uh, there were Vietnamese, two Vietnamese kids and one Hmong kid from Laos, and um, they, um, they liked wearing baggy pants. It was a fashion statement, actually. <laughs> uh, and two of them actually uh, did really well in school, were honor students, and... Um, and they weren't actually involved in a gang, but they were just waiting for a car to pick them up, uh, for a friend to pick them up or something, or family or whatever. 
and the police zoomed in. They have the gang units in these police cars, and they just rounded them up and detained them and took their picture. At that time, the camera of choice was a Polaroid. Uh, this was before <laughs> digital cameras, and so now it's probably ubiquitous. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I can get into what happens now. But at the time, they took their pictures, and I thought it was wrong for them to take pictures of people who are not yeah. you know, being charged with any crime. <laughs> and, um, so, and then it turned out it was very prevalent in the county and uh, outside the county in L.A. We are kind of south of Los Angeles. And so at that time, there weren't that many Asians. Now Asians are kind of much more in Orange County, and especially at my school. The, I work at University of California, Irvine, mm-hmm. and the majority of the students are Asian, actually. It's the light, largest percentage of any school in the U.S. Yeah, I remember, Hawaii. I remember reading that it's something like 60% of the students at UC Irvine are Asian descent. It goes up and down. So, okay. yeah, it's uh, it's like being in Hong Kong. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Go outside. But anyway, the, uh, um, so the students were singled up because they were, maybe they, they looked out of place there or something, I don't know. So the cops, or maybe they have a quota to, you know, take pictures and I don't turn in numbers. I don't know. But anyway, they stopped them. And so I was able to get some uh, civil liberties group, American Civil Liberties Union, to get involved and help them, and their parents agreed that they could file a lawsuit. So eventually, uh, three of the two of two or three of the kids uh, um, did join in a lawsuit, and then eventually it widened to a class action lawsuit. Um, and so um, they were able to basically be successful. the The city of Garden Grove uh, reached a settlement with the ACLU, and. I think there were five kids at the time and uh, who actually filed, and they each got uh, $5,000, I think. And, oh, okay. Uh, so the policy was uh, kind of maybe they they stopped taking pictures, as, uh, but they didn't really – I didn't see too much change until I think more recently they uh, they don't need to take pictures on the street they because – there are police in the secondary schools based in the schools now in yeah. security. And so they have access to the yearbook, to the student <laughs> information, I'm sure. And so they really, um, I mean, they could use the yearbook pictures and they know who every kid is anyway. <laughs> so yeah. because they're based in the school. So I think it's been diverted. They don't need to take Polaroid pictures before. Yeah, Sometimes they used to not even... Sometimes they would detain kids, and then another car would come with a Polaroid and take it. <laughs> but now, you know, now I think police cars even have video in their car, so I think it's it's kind of a moot point in in that sense. The technology has advanced too too fast. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the the issue still remains. So in terms of, you know, I mean, I can take pictures of the cops uh, in the street, but if they're taking it, it's a different thing, you know, because you don't know what they're going to do with it. Yeah, that's well, it's really interesting how, though the actual very conspicuous practice of taking photographs of youth has ended and maybe might not be an issue that would garner as much attention because of how obvious it is, but it's still going on. So, because my next question for you was going to be if you see any changes to police practice since the Garden Grove incident. One thing we complain about is the word, uh, the way they described in the field interview uh, 
uh, process, they put they you know when you stop somebody in the in the street, the police are supposed to um, record the interaction on field interview cards and uh, all forms. Uh, I'm not sure how they do it today, but they in those days they had a, a paper uh, uh, or they recorded. Uh, the, even the ethnicity of the people they detained, and they would put O for Oriental, which is a pretty <laughs> archaic uh, terminology. Yeah. And so, yeah, so we protested that. So I, I actually don't know. I, I, I don't know what they do today, because this is like 20, almost 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was yeah, almost 20 years ago. Uh, so I hope they don't use that, that terminology uh, still. Um, but they do... Um, they do claim that in a public street they they don't stop because of race or, or color of the skin, uh, and we did get some good publicity right before the settlement uh, in on CBS Evening News. I they, uh, there's a program called Eye on America, mm-hmm. and actually Connie Chung had, had uh, happened to be hosting that program that evening, and so uh, the couple of the kids. Uh, Way were featured in the article, and so um, so that got national publicity about the the this kind of incident. So, but subsequently, I think the the gang database actually went nationwide. <laughs> I think, yeah, it used to be called Cow Gang, and then it was changed. The name changed, and then and now, of course, with with um, this whole terrorism um, focus, <laughs> you can't even. You know, it's not, they take pictures of you, but if you're taking pictures of some other thing that they don't like, you could be hauled in for questioning. <laughs> uh, we had some Muslim students at my school. They had been seeing, they had invited this labor MP, a radical labor MP from UK to speak, Galloway. Yeah. George Galloway. Yeah. yeah. And after he, after he spoke, they drove him to the Orange County Airport, which uh, the big thing about this Orange County Airport is there's a picture of, uh, there's a statue of John Wayne uh, with, with his uh, guns, <laughs> with his guns around his mouth. Uh, and, but the students wanted to take a farewell picture of George Galloway, mm-hmm. and so they took a picture of him at the airport. So a few days later, some police showed up at their homes and asked them why they were taking pictures at the airport. <laughs> uh, so I don't know who was under surveillance. Was it Galloway? Was it the students? Or was it? Were they trying to protect the airport from terrorists? <laughs> so I have cool. no idea. So that was kind of a spooky thing. Yeah, that, but you that, can't even take a tourist picture. Yeah, because it's it's at the airport. I mean, you'd imagine that they'd be accustomed to having people taking photographs, but yeah, it's not. It's just, I, I, it's just they they're getting super crazy about anything they think, especially of a person of color or somebody mm-hmm. that looks different from the mainstream, even though the county has, the color, color makeup of the county has actually shifted. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's m- actually more Latinos in in schools now than in in, uh, in uh, primary schools and secondary schools than anywhere else mm-hmm. uh, than, than the past. I mean, there's a majority enrolled in, in education at this point, you know, at the primary school level, you know. Yeah, we were just actually mentioning the concept where we, the citizens, are, seems like we're under constant surveillance where it's progressed to a point where we're not even aware of it anymore, and it's not as obvious as I'd mentioned earlier. But 
doing that back to the police and doing that back to figures of authority is so is seen as such a threat. I was wondering what you see our role, I guess, as members of the public and what our role would be in raising awareness and what we can do to police police misconduct. I think that we can, we have a right actually to take pictures back of them mm-hmm. and there's some efforts to educate the public. There's actually a video put out by a police watch group in Berkeley or in Oakland uh, in Northern California where they've sent out a video about how you can document police abuse and they actually had suggested bringing a video camera and photographing what they're doing. And so the night that O.J. was actually tracked by the police and arrested, I think, O.J. was driving his pickup or whatever, not pickup, uh, SUV down the freeways in Orange County. That same night, I was actually watching that going to a friend's house who was active in the group we had started mm-hmm. over police abuse. This is back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And uh, we watched it on TV, and then I left the house, and I, got, I saw the police pull over this pickup with 13 kids on it, something <laughs> like that. And obviously that's a violation of traffic rules, right? You can't have 13 mm-hmm. kids in a, in a vehicle. But they were actually, so I videotaped it. I actually stood across the street and videotaped it. And they saw me. I was far away that I wasn't interfering with what the cops were doing. So when you do that, um, when you're observing police activities, it's important to not interfere with what they're doing. So I photographed these kids being stopped, and they would empty their, you know, their sandwich bags, their purses or whatever, handbags, whatever. There were boys and girls. And then make the boys roll up their sleeves to see the tattoos on their, mm. on their sleeves, on their arm and stuff. And um, so it was, this was all at night, like 9 o'clock or something. And so I actually documented this whole thing. And so you could actually, if you stand far away and if you don't uh, harass the police, <laughs> if you just do it in a safe manner for yourself also, don't get run over um, by cars. It was a road, actually, and I was just far away from the other, on the other side. But on campus one time, I, I saw the police stopping some Asian um, person in, in a car right at the entrance to the parking lot. And so I... I reached into my bag, I was carrying some bag, and my camera happened to be in the bag, and I was reaching for it. And the cop asked me, what are you reaching for? And I said, my camera. He said, okay. And then he went back to talking to the people in the car. (laughs) 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 So he knew he couldn't couldn't do anything. Although one time I did, I did see some kids who were skateboarding, or who had been accused of skateboarding Mm -hmm. on campus. They, They claimed they were just carrying the skateboard, but they were detained by two cops for skateboarding and on campus there are certain areas who can't skateboard supposedly because you might run over somebody I guess so they um, I went up I was walking down the steps of this right outside the library and these two kids have been stopped by two cops and I started taking pictures as I walked down the street and the one cop said you cannot take pictures I said I'm a journalist and he said you're not and so we argued a bit about that and I can't, and then the kids said take, take the pictures take the pictures <laughs> so I, t- I took them and then eventually they they gave me a, the information I called the you know I called the mother of the the kid later to talk about it. and and it turned out the police kept insisting I couldn't take pictures so I filed a complaint with the police you can always file a civilian mm-hmm. complaint and this was campus police so I went over to the police department and they were kind of rude. The, the duty officers said, what are you complaining about? And this is in the lobby with everybody listening, you know, there. Mm. And I said, I, I want to talk to a duty officer. 
the, the, the watch, the person at the counter wasn't actually the duty officer. So I was able to get a private meeting with him. And then I said, this cop shouldn't have said I can't take pictures it's because it's in the public street and I wasn't bothering anybody. It was all in public. And so he, so on Monday they called me back and the uh, policeman called me back and said, how do you want to punish this officer? <laughs> I said, I don't want to punish him. I just want, I mean, I just want him to know the rules. And he said, okay. Uh, and then a month later, the funny thing about the story is the month later, this cop who I had complained about called me up and he said, you're a librarian. Uh, you know how to find stuff. They sent me back to school to look up constitutional law. I can't find some anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I actually had a manual from some group that w- looks at reporters' rights, and they actually have a chapter on what your rights are vis-a-vis the police and stuff, your rights to take pictures and all that. So I, 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 I gave him the citation. We had it in the library, I think. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so, pretty ironic. He, so now he calls me a buddy, you know, when, when he's, or, you know, when there are protests on campus and he's, you know, watching them, yeah. he comes up to me and pretends I'm his buddy. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so, it's funny how that's turned out, actually. Yeah, so it, w- it was funny, and he, I mean, I didn't want him to lose his job over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I think the problem is, I think a lot of cops aren't trained really in in how to handle uh, protests. And um, right now, we have a huge case going on, uh, two cases actually: uh, students um, who were stopped, uh, prote- uh, who were arrested for protesting outside the chancellor's office. And then the other students were were protesting. The ambassador from Israel, Michael Oren, gave a talk here and chanted and disrupted his talk. Although he actually finished his talk, but uh, they were also arrested. And they actually impaneled a grand jury to investigate the Muslim students. And um, they also uh, they ended up with uh, just finding misdemeanor charges. But these are students who, and former students who are now facing jail time and fines. And uh, the trials for both of these cases, it's Irvine 11 and Irvine 19, uh, some of them are not from Irvine, actually, but they, they all, the trials are starting in a few weeks. So it's a pretty, uh, pretty kind of damaging crackdown on <laughs> civil liberties on campus because, you know, students protest all the time. So it seems kind of to have cast a chilling effect on campus if you're going to you know, turn over the cases to the DA and have them pro- be prosecuted for just no- normal stuff that, you know, Angela Davis was actually on campus and she told this group that when she was a student in the 60s or 70s, they protested all the time. They took over buildings, renamed them uh, at UC San Diego and nobody ever got arrested. <laughs> but uh, Irvine seems to be setting an example to the to the authorities, I suppose to try to say we we can crack down and we we can keep order law and order and ironically the muslim students their charges were announced the same week the revolution was happening in you know <laughs> egypt and other places so the, over there you're allowed to protest and you even <laughs> topple a government but on the uc campus you can't protest you're arrested it just seems like a lack of democracy somewhere that's really interesting. This actually leads me into a question that I have about the orange curtain, which I've read a little bit about. Obviously, where it's a little difficult to get an exact feel for it here on the East Coast. But just to explain, if you, I was wondering whether you'd be able to explain briefly to our listeners what the orange curtain is and also 
how you see subversity and the role of activism and awareness raising at UC Irvine as yeah, in I, relation to yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, Orange Curtain is kind of a, I mean, it's a term they use because they feel that they're so isolated in the past and there's this kind of right-wing conspiracy here where everything seems so right-wing in the past and it's like, you know, people said, uh, you know what, in the in the Cold War days, they used to describe uh, Russia as uh, what curtain, the Iron Curtain, I guess. <laughs> and uh, so, so it was just a play on words. But uh, but behind the reality, behind that description, was the reality of uh, just all white, basically all white uh, county, where conservatives really uh, were in power, and. Uh, there was no diversity, and that's most typical, most support, well portrayed. The best portrayal of that is on the TV series, The O.C., <laughs> yeah, yeah, which was how they depicted this county as a group of rich white kids, basically, who party all the time and stuff. And I, I didn't watch it, so I actually shouldn't say <laughs> too much about it. But it's such a stereotypical image that, you know, the newspapers wrote about it. And so I wanted to counter that, the image, even before this TV show. And so I knew that there was stuff going on, there was activism going on, and that people, there were activists here all the time, there were peace activists, uh, a lot of people, actually a lot of retirees actually retire in Orange County, and and they were active in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, and, you know, they were, so there's a long history of uh, people who may have been active somewhere else, but they moved here, or they were active here, and so... I've been also trying to excavate the past and look into 60s movements. And I, I once wrote about the activism in Irvine uh, by the first class of students at UC Irvine. They had organized a SDS chapter, Students for Democratic Society chapter. Uh, TA, a teaching assistant, teaching fellow, had led it. And one of the undergrads who was in it also was involved. And they had protested the Vietnam War at a nearby naval base, El Toro. When that closed, I wrote an article for the OC Weekly, our alternative paper, about that. I got some uh, declassified documents from the Office of Naval Intelligence. I'd actually written to the FBI for files on, on uh, UCI, and uh, they referred my request. Uh, one of the requests was referred to, uh, to the Office of Naval Intelligence because they were the holders of the original documents. And so I got all these files back, and it was great because they even had photographs they had to photocopy, and they kept track of every car that was parked by the protesters outside the base, <laughs> or outside the train station, actually, because they, they knew that people were arriving by train to go to the protests. And when I wrote the article, I actually found, I was able to do use Google by that time and, <laughs> and locate the, the head of the SDS on campus and the, this graduate student. And the undergrad or graduate student, I can't remember now. And this was like, you know, 20, 30 years mm-hmm. later and was able to interview them. And the head of the SDS then is is still active in peace causes at this point. And the uh, student ended up uh, editing a music magazine, actually. So anyway, they were, they were their speeches were quoted and their names were there. So usually these files, they cross out the names, but because they made a public speech, I guess. But then there were other names of people that marched that they forgot to cross out, but I couldn't track those down. And then I've talked to other people who remember the case, and yeah, and then I run into people in LA sometimes who who remember 
that they were at the rally where this happened. So I think it's important to, uh, you know, not forget that a lot of stuff has happened before and that we can find, I, I'm not sure about Canada, but there must be public records acts uh, in Canada too that you can try to find out what the state has done um, in the past and get the documents. And, you know, there should be WikiLeaks everywhere <laughs> you know, to document this type of stuff because it's easy to forget. Uh, every every you know, the thing is that, I mean, I think all activists think that everything happened, you know, anew. And it's mm -hmm. not true, obviously. There's a whole history of, and we can learn from what happened in the past. Yeah, that definitely is a very interesting point that you've brought out because of your role as a librarian. I just, like, I have a couple of questions for you about what you're doing and how your radio broadcast relates to your profession as a librarian in library sciences at uh, UC Irvine. I'm going to just start off with basic question, which is that how would you find being a librarian would connect to activism for those of us who don't know? Well, there's actually groups being formed now called Radical Librarians Group, or Re Radical Reference even, mm -hmm. and they would answer, <laughs> answer questions uh, <laughs> from radicals or about radicals, I guess, or on anything, I suppose. But uh, I, I always thought that because a librarian would have access to resources and be able to find things that other people may not be able to. It really does help um, these causes to be able to have somebody um, be able to dig up stuff. And I, I actually think of Mao. I know people have many opinions about Ch Chairman Mao, but Mao started off as a library assistant in in the Peking Library, and actually uh, a lot of radicals probably. Uh, found out about, uh, you know, the country's uh, history of uh, repression from reading about it uh, if they didn't uh, know about it from their parents or colleagues or whatever, classmates. But um, so I think there is a, uh, I mean, people dismiss, they think everything's online now, but there's not everything is online yet, <laughs> and nor would ever be, I suppose. Well, I mean, Google can't Google everything. I mean, Google can't digitize everything, um, and uh, and it, you really don't want Google to do everything. And so, <laughs> but uh, so, but it does help that I have this job. That uh, and I'm also the poli sci librarian, so mm -hmm. I was able to have the synchronicity, I suppose, uh, with my radio show, and so. Even the radio show is part of my university service. We're supposed to do university service and some kind of, some kind of public service. <laughs> so this is, since this is a public affairs, it uh, qualifies, I think. And so, um, I mean, I, I think a lot of people have gone to library school because of, of uh, knowing me. Um, I have a lot of people that work for me and uh, that uh, ended up as librarians. And they think it's an you know, interesting career, I guess. So I, I'm glad I inspired some of them to <laughs> to take the leap, but I I think libraries are becoming very corporate now, mm -hmm. and so it's quite uh, a different uh, task. And I was able to do a lot of this on my free time, you know, um, and and so you know it, it just depends if they load you up with a lot of work, then you can't do it. You, you'll be exhausted by the time <laughs> you go home. <laughs> so. But, I mean, a lot of people, even with corporate jobs, they can do, uh, you know, activist work in the, yeah. at night and whatever. Uh, and so there are ways to, you know, be a subversive, you know, uh, even 
in your work, I think. You can uh, educate people. You can um, stimulate people. You don't have to. I think I'm essentially optimist. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this type of work. You know, Otherwise, you would give up, I think, and just move to the, you know, <laughs> the Bahamas or and uh, rest uh, and you know, go swimming or something. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but I think that spoken word is still, I mean, people, the problem is nobody, I mean, I know nobody, but very few people read a lot now. But actually, there's a lot of effort to put up radical text and online for free even. Uh, and anarchists have, have done that a lot, actually. This whole anarchist movement of uh, passing out pamphlets even, but also digitizing it and putting it online. So there's a whole um, kind of history of that going on uh, to make resources more available and make it free, freely available. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting dynamic to be a librarian and have this amount of, I guess, institutional privilege and have access to all these documents. And it's great that you're able to use that access and share it with everyone in a democratic way, like through and also the there's actually, broadcast. Yeah, and mm-hmm. also through... In the library world also, there's this move against, even though I know the library systems are becoming more corporate, but the there is a counter tendency is to try to liberate information. I think uh, in Canada, there's actually a data liberation movement to try to get government data free to, to users. So I understand in Canada, all sorts of data from government agencies are, are accessible for free in any public library even. Whereas in America, it's, even though it's, it's free, but it's not as much uh, movement, I think. It started in Canada, actually. Mm-hmm. And I go to meetings uh, with my Canadian colleagues who are data librarians, and they would wear T-shirts uh, saying data liberation. <laughs> and so in a way, they are the insurgents in the, in the library world, too. But they are the leaders of this movement also to try to liberate information and make it accessible to people. And I was actually in Montreal at... Uh, at a data liberation um, a conference where we, where people talked about that. So I think, you know, we can learn from Canadians also about how we can make the government much more responsive to the population. We're broadcasting this uh, radio course from Montreal where the host of Subversity is being interviewed by um, a student from this uh, experimental course in... Uh, at McGill University. Website is uh, east306.wordpress.com where the original audio uh, is archived and there's a description of uh, the interview. Uh, there's also a um, complimentary uh, description on the Subversities blogs, blog uh, which is uh, subversities.blogspot.com you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're listening to an interview by Samantha uh, Chrysanthansis uh, with uh, Dan Zhang, uh, the host of Subversity. Uh, Samantha is a student in a class uh, taught, uh, co-taught by a... Um, former UCI graduate, a graduate student who got his, her PhD here, Adrienne Hurley. Uh, she's teaching a Asian studies class there, and the students are doing this experimental uh, radio program 
uh, where they've interviewed a lot of activists and academics. Uh, so Samantha Christantis is interviewing me. I guess to build off of this idea of data liberation, what role do you think that different types of technology that are coming out that may not necessarily be so institutionalized, like, or at least not so institutionalized with regards to the government, like Facebook, for example, or the ability to have your podcasts available on iTunes. How do you think that would affect access to information? I mean, uh, I mean, there are constraints uh, even on iTunes. I had a show um, on, uh, you know, the that show called Vagina Chronicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vagina monologues, uh, yes. Monologues, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> using it. But when I put it on my iTunes uh, shop, you know, whatever, I can upload my sh- free podcast there and put it there. Uh, but uh, when I did that, they uh, censored the word the vagina. <laughs> so the, the only words that show up um, uh, after these asterisk uh, monologues. <laughs> So when people are looking for my show, you know, if you type in, I don't know what happens. if I never typed in vagina. I wonder what happens. But (laughs) since they deleted it from the Mm -hmm. heading of the playlist, so it just says dot, 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 star, 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 monologues. So, you know, somebody there is uh, thinking we have to protect children or somebody um, from these subversive uh, interviews. So it's (laughs) kind of crazy. so I mean, there are there are barriers, even though it's yeah. m- making stuff more accessible. Even Facebook, you know, uses your information. If you click on something else, an application, it would drag up all your personal information and share it, even mm-hmm. if you didn't want to share it. And so, uh, so there are problems with that. And I think I don't know if it's maybe it's a generational thing. Uh, I mean, I can, we're more about privacy than maybe my um, students probably, mm-hmm. uh, because they're more used to you know, chatting and sharing their photos and their personal information on Facebook. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think, uh, I mean, if you, if you have a, um, you know, grassroots thing like WikiLeaks, uh, I mean, that's the problem there is the state could crack down and stop your funding, you know, by stopping Amazon or PayPal mm-hmm. or whatever from mm-hmm. collecting money for you. Even free, even donations, and so the state has a lot of power. Uh, but the people are there are more people, you know. So I think there's always ways to counter the state. I'm actually going to go back to a point you were saying a second or two ago about how about expectations of privacy and how a younger generation, I suppose, is less inclined to be guarded about their information and just. I was wondering what you were, thought about that. If you could elaborate on that a little bit. Well, in a way, I agree with them because I think if everything is out in the open, then you know, then you really uh, they can't use it against you. I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, if everything is is public, then we are used to public stuff, and so what's a big deal? Uh, but I actually went on a uh, on a legal. I, I mean, I, I filed a lawsuit against the CIA for spying on me. And the U.S. has this Privacy Act, mm-hmm. USA Privacy, U.S. Privacy Act, and um, it was uh, enacted in the wake of uh, abuses over spying on um, civilians and students protesting the Vietnam War. So after the war ended, uh, Congress took a look at it and decided to enact the Privacy Act. And the key provision there is um, provision that uh, says this, 
the federal government, it applies only to the federal government, cannot collect or retain First Amendment related uh, 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 information relating to the First Amendment uh, activities of U.S. citizens or permanent residents. So in theory, it cannot collect even of Canadians who live in the U.S. if they're permanent resident uh, in terms of their First Amendment activities, if they go to a protest, if they do whatever. So I had been um, indexing. Actually, I'm an indexer also. And I index uh, COVID Action uh, Information Bulletin, which is now uh, later became COVID Action Quarterly. Um, and uh, they were exposing CIA shenanigans uh, in around the world. And so I used to index them. And so the CIA started keeping a file on me. <laughs> I found out when I did a, a Privacy Act request. You can request stuff on Privacy Act. Uh, for anything uh, they have on you. And so uh, I happened to f- not get it. You know, they said you can't get it because <laughs> of national security. And so they made a big deal about, I couldn't even, they wouldn't even tell me what the dates were of the documents they had on me. Because then they said I could figure out which country I was in and then figure out which country was, or what was happening. <laughs> but I couldn't, actually. When they later gave me the dates, I still could or even the documents, I couldn't figure out what was going on <laughs> or who did it. But they had shared my file with a foreign intelligence agency. Uh, so I thought, wow, I mean, if some Israeli you know, spy service wants my file, they can ask the CIA for it. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. So I, I talked to some lawyers, and I actually filed my own lawsuit. I didn't have any lawyers actually that filed it for me. I just thought anybody can file a lawsuit. Yeah. So I filed it and then I freaked out because they was they all these, you know, court dates came up and said they're gonna dismiss it if you don't show up or whatever. So mm-hmm. finally I got ACLU involved and so the, eventually the case resolved itself. Uh, after the the Center for National Security in uh, D C took on the case, they met with the CIA lawyer and they they settled the case. The CIA promised not to spy on me anymore, <laughs> uh, which is funny. But uh, but they refused to make it a class action to apply to everybody. They they wouldn't say they wouldn't spy on everybody. And this was back in the uh, I think 90s actually, late uh, 90s when they settled. And um, they said they were worried that I would go to a mosque, and they wanted to be able to track me at a mosque. Um, I said I'm not religious, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> so anyway, so now of course there, there's a whole controversy. There's a whole case in Orange County actually right now. The ACLU just took a case because the FBI went into the mosque in Orange County to spy. They sent a agent, sent a informant uh, into a into the mosque to spy on other Muslims. So he just he filed a lawsuit against the CIA, uh, the FBI actually, just last week. So uh, the ACLU took on his case. Yeah. And he, I mean, he filed a lawsuit himself against the FBI, and then he, the ACLU took on a case against the FBI for spying on people in mosques. So, so it's kind of, but, uh, you know, so it shows that whenever the state does something, it's probably been thinking about doing it uh, 10, 20 years earlier, <laughs> or maybe done it, you know, 100 years ago. Uh, so they were, I mean, I were, uh, my lawyers were surprised. They brought up mosques, you know, that, you know, that, <laughs> You know, this is a, every. I mean, Americans have a First Amendment right to go to a mosque or go to a church or whatever, but they wanted the right to do that in my case, and so that was kind of funny. Um, but they, it shows that uh, I think 
I mean, the government would try to skirt around the rules. And since my case, of course, there was a new law in, in the U.S. called the um, private. Uh, what's that act? Uh, the one after 9/11. The, uh, the Patriot Act. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> <The> USA Patriot. <laughs> USA Patriot. You can spell it. Mm-hmm. That the words actually mean something to protect something. And um, Patriot Act. And that actually says that um, they can basically do anything they want, basically, and uh, they can even figure out if you have checked out a book even. Uh, although there are state laws that say the state cannot keep records of what you read, but they can go. I mean, the Patriot Act kind of trumps a lot of things. And uh, and in the USA, the Privacy Act actually has uh, the provision I, I cited earlier as a qualification unless otherwise um, allowed by another law, you know. So the Privacy Act may... You know, some people may argue that that actually trumps the Privacy Act, but we haven't tested it yet. You know, somebody should file another lawsuit and hmm. test it. But so I think the the privacy was limited to, you know, to First Amendment activities, and and the Supreme Court just upheld, uh, you know, basically free speech, even hateful speech. Um, this right wing church who doesn't like gays has been demonstrating at. Uh, funerals of yeah. even U.S. servicemen, and the Supreme Court said they have a right to do that. And <laughs> so um, the First Amendment is a little bit, you know, it's di- every country is different, but here the First Amendment allows you to, you know, protest. Um, the question is whether, you know, what you do is uh, fits under the First Amendment. So it's a legalistic thing, but I think for activists, I think uh, we should act like we have uh, the right to speak out. Uh, the problem with the, these uh, social media materials is that uh, these uh, technologies is that, like in China, they're saying now that they're going to keep track of everybody's phone uh, messages or whatever, and to find out, uh, you know, for congestion, traffic congestion, they're going to. I mean, if all, many people are gathering at a particular spot, they can divert and get more trains on or whatever or buses or whatever, but, but of course the fear among activists is that China is going to use this to track protests. If people are going to show up at a certain location, they can tell from the you know, GPS that monitors your um, uh, smartphone uh, to tell how many people are gathering at this place, uh, and then they can send more police there uh, to outnumber you. And so I think there's good and bad, and I think the you know there's a way to organize people, mm-hmm. but of course the state um, may be one step ahead of you. <laughs> so that's always something to want to watch out. Um, I mean, I think it's it's still dangerous to to text people and say come to a revolution, come to a revolution, or come <laughs> to a protest, because somebody could use that against you later if the revolution fails. You know, so that's always the kind of catch-22, you don't know, you know, you want people to join with you, but then you never know if the people there um, are being watched. Yeah, it's uh, kind of funny how just as we're being able to access each other more and more, the ways that that access is mediated is always vulnerable to surveillance. So uh, we're kind of back at square one, as you were saying. That's Although I think uh, my attitude is that, you know, you just have to do everything 
so you don't get in trouble, mm-hmm. you know. But I, I know in some states, you, you know, some countries, that's impossible. You know, any kind of act could be deemed uh, a threat to national security. Uh, I mean, in the in Western democracies, maybe there's more space for protesting. Uh, although at UCI, it seems like it's more restricted at this point, especially for students. But uh, I know, of course, in, you know, people with institutional jobs may have, you know, more privilege, of course, to speak out and stuff. Uh, faculty have tenure in uh, universities, uh, although, you know, that didn't stop some people from being fired and stuff. <laughs> yeah, so it's not a total safety. Okay, what I maybe want to ask you about now is, given the unique fear, I guess, that students would have in jeopardizing their educations by participating in protests at universities and on the street, what advice would you give to student protesters in trying to get their message out there, but at the same time staying out of trouble? Well, I mean, you could always do it anonymously. I mean, you could you could write leaflets, uh, you could pass out leaflets, you could... I mean, if if you don't want to join a demonstration, I mean, you could be a bystander and just, uh, you know, I mean, they're different, you know, it depends on the campus, I think. Uh, the campus isn't cracking down, that there's no problem with, uh, you know, uh, participating in a protest or sit-in. Uh, but if, you know, if short of that, I mean, you, there's other ways you can, you can, you can do anonymous support things, you can sign petitions, and you know, with, with fake names, I guess. <laughs> I mean, uh, but uh, just be aware that everything you put online may show up somewhere, or even some email you write may get be posted somewhere. So uh, I'm always amazed that some petition I signed could show up, you know, 20 years later, saying that I'm supporting some, you know, crazy cause. And so, um, you know, it's just, um, it's, you know, and that's a fact, I guess, that could happen. I mean, uh, but if you, uh, you know, if you believe in it, then you have to decide whether it's worth the risk. Everything is mm-hmm. has risks and benefits. Every action you take, I think, and so you just have to consider that before you act. Um, and I, th- I don't think you want to jeopardize your financial aid. I mean, if, if that, <laughs> you know, if that's how, you, if you're depending on that to go to school, I mean, definitely, it's not worth it. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, you know, some people who were arrested, I think, did drop out of school, uh, who were arrested in the recent protests on campus, um, you know, decided not to go on to a PhD, just ended with their master's or whatever. Um, so it's, you know, there are, there are consequences to what action you take. And it depends on whether you think you, you know, you think you want to stay in academia, you <laughs> stay, or you want to go out and do something else. Um, so that's your decision. We can't, you know, nobody else can decide for you. Um. Now, we're nearing the end of the interview, but while I've still got your attention and I can ask you whatever I'd like, what I'm going to actually return to is in keeping with this idea of archiving information and archiving events and people and places and how important librarians are to public memory and how subversity often unearths or resurrects different works or the lives of different people who you've encountered in your years as an activist. I just was wondering if there were any, was any 
fallen activist or academic who's passed away recently who you think that we as university students in a social justice class should remember or get to know? I once wrote about this. He, he, she's the spouse, uh, the wife of, uh, of a Japanese-American who was active in the Communist Party in the U.S., uh, but she didn't get much attention, so it's, and I actually forgot both of the names, <laughs> so I feel really bad. But I wrote a wrote an entry for, on her in some uh, biography that uh, it's like a historical biography of people, only people that have died actually. And so, uh, but she her, she was very active in San Francisco labor movement. Uh, there was a strike in the '30s, and. Uh, and uh, she actually ended up going into an internment camp, and she was she was not Japanese, but uh, sorry, she was white actually. But but she she ended up because she had a kid, and the husband was in an internment camp during World War II. She ended up going in there with him to uh, because she wanted to raise a family together, and so um, so that was an interesting case. And the thirties is interesting because actually a lot of labor strife, a lot of. And uh, because of that, uh, we got the, f- you know, la- I mean, the labor movement in the U.S. got the uh, the five-hour, five, not five-hour, five-week day, I guess. Uh, five-week, no, five-day week. <laughs> five, what do you call it? Uh, the work days uh, were shortened to five days and the eight-hour day, maybe. And um, so, I mean, there were a lot of labor uh, work conditions that improved after all these labor strife. Uh, and so there was some, um, so, I mean, digging up stuff is partly what I like to do. Mm-hmm. And partly, I mean, I, I got obsessed with uh, state uh, files on people and so found out that you can easily get stuff if people are dead, actually, much easily, much more easily. The Privacy Act doesn't apply if you're dead. You don't have privacy in the U.S. <laughs> I'm not sure about anywhere else, but... Uh, so I, I, I used to, every few weeks, write to the FBI for files of dead activists. And, um, you know, I, I even wrote for the file of Foucault. And he had come to the U.S., and uh, all I got was his visa application. <laughs> uh, there was nothing about his activism or his gay stuff or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, S&M or whatever he did. <laughs> nothing on that. I was, I was kind of uh, uh, disappointed. <laughs> all I got was his... Uh, application for a visa okay. uh, yeah so I mean if somebody is dead then you have to write you have to send an obituary along to show the FBI that you know that person really is dead or an article in a newspaper uh, obituary in a uh, newspaper mm-hmm. because it's your words against because I, otherwise people could say I'm dead and get my file <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so I think it's it's being a librarian is, is interesting because I was able to dig up stuff on, um, but you know, so I think there should be an archive actually of, you know, the problem is all these are decentralized and um, a lot of, uh, um, I mean, I don't even know whether I'm going to, you talk about public memory and uh, or the memory, I mean, I can't remember things I did or, you know, people I write about <laughs> or <laughs> people I interviewed, so, but um, after I'm gone, I just hope you know, there's a technology that's able to convert easily analog to digital and, and then preserve it digital forever. Because uh, I have to deposit my tapes. Uh, you know, I mean, I know it's on iTunes and on 
but who knows what happens to those. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, because that's not really a repository. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have a archiving policy, I don't think. It's a business model, but doesn't include uh, archiving. And uh, so I... So anyway, so the the problem is we need really uh, activists need to think about the future also and not just the past about how to preserve these things so that we can teach and future generations and also you know they can learn from what has happened so they don't repeat the same mistakes basically you know you've actually introduced a completely new dynamic I'd never thought of before which is how important it is to take control over the archiving of what you've produced or what you deem is important because though it's readily available through all these giant corporations that archive files online, Google Books, for example, we have no control over whether that'll be around in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So that presents additional food for thought. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, I've written a lot of stuff over the years, articles and stuff, and they show up, uh, all these databases that we pay thousands of dollars for in the library uh, have articles I wrote, written, uh, I've written, even though I never gave permission for them. And the database producers, um, uh, their, their point of view is that if the publisher gives the permission, then, you know, then they have the right. But technically in the U.S., the authors also have permission, unless they turned it over to the uh, publication. And so I think it's important to retain the right, unless you don't believe in copyright. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of anarchists, say, they say anti-copy, yes. uh, anti-copy, uh, copy left. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's a new trend. Or, or, or the, the, there's a uh, creative commons license yeah. where you want everybody to use your content. So that's probably the better way to go to... Mm-hmm. If you, because nobody's getting paid for content, really. Yeah. I mean, Huffington Post never pays anybody. They've used some of my protest stuff, and they used a picture I took at this protest that led to all these arrests uh, outside this uh, chancellor's office, and uh, never paid, of course. And uh, and now they, you know, they just sold the or the AOL just bought them for millions of dollars. So somebody's making money off your stuff. <laughs> but, yeah. So I mean, the corporate world. Um, you know, deals with money, and uh, activists want the word out. So, you know, and people thought the Huffington Post was uh, a left publication, and it was, but she was shabby, uh, Ariana Huffington, was mm-hmm. uh, the head of it, was savvy enough to know that if you get people to come to your site, it's a new business model already. Uh, that's what businesses care about, number of hits. And so I hope your um, your show brings more hits <laughs> to your show. <laughs> so somebody will buy you out. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> Can only hope, right? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's good to you know talk about creative control. You you want control over your your life also, even after you're gone. At least have some say. <laughs> I'll leave some instructions, I think, to see how it's presented because I'm worried that if I give my stuff to an archive and they don't read Chinese, they'll toss all the articles about me in Chinese about what I did or what I wrote. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's just you need somebody who knows what's going on and to look at your files. And so it's better to, before you donate anything for activists, to be around, you know. I mean, to, I mean, to donate when you're alive. <laughs> Don't leave it in a, you know, in your house, and then somebody finds it later, and you have no say. <laughs> for that. 
So it's always to make plans. It's good to make plans, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, about archiving, about deposit, about uh, donating it to some um, non-profit or some public uh, institution. Okay. Well, I think we're uh, just about running out of time here. I want to thank you so much for speaking to us today about both getting the word out and making sure that the word is available for people to read and witness for many years to come. Thank you so much for participating, Dan. Thank you so much, Sam. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay, Okay, I'll keep in touch. Uh, that was an interview by Samantha Chrysanthus, uh, turning the tables on me. Instead of me interviewing people, she interviewed me. Uh, and it's up today on the blog, uh, east306.wordpress.com. And also uh, a link also from the Subversity's blog. Um, this is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And coming up, the Dread Zone. Stay tuned.